As we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to turn to Romans and chapter 2. As we work our way through Romans, Romans chapter 2, I want to begin reading with verse uh, 17 and read through the end of the chapter. But as we come to this passage, you'll find, um, I assume on the screen and in a bulletin, this prayer of illumination. And uh, we'd like for us to pray that together. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, whose word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, opened and illuminates our minds, that we may purely and perfectly understand your word, and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood, that in nothing we may be displeasing to your majesty, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Romans and chapter 2, and verse 17, this is the word of the Lord. And if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellence because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but who keeps the law, will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, if you're not a Bible reader, and perhaps even if you are, a passage like this can, can sound a bit strange. I mean, what's all this thing about the Jews why is Paul so concerned? Uh, it may even sound a bit offensive to you. It might, might sound a bit anti-Semitic. Um, I assure you, and I think you know that Paul isn't anti-Semitic in this discussion at all in this passage, um, for he himself is, is Jewish, he's an Israelite, and he loves his fellow Israelites. In fact, in uh, chapter 9 of Romans, he writes this. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And and basically, Paul's saying, I love my kinsmen, I love my fellow Israelites so much that I'm willing to go to hell for them. If that would keep them out of hell, I'd be willing to be cursed for them. That's his affection 
for his own. In chapter 10, he says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And again, that's why he's writing. Because you see, he knows that his fellow Israelites have been privileged by God. They've had great benefits, much more so uh, than the Gentiles or the non-Jews, the Greeks, as he often puts it. They've had a great advantage. They've had the covenant of God, as we'll see. They've, they've had the law of God. And so his concern for them is that they will place their trust in simply having these things. They'll place their trust in the benefits, the privileges they've had as the people of God, and not actually trust Christ. And so he wants to make certain that they understand that while they've been privileged and while they've been blessed with the law and with circumcision, with the covenant, that these, in and of themselves, do not save them. They mustn't rely upon that. And this is of great significance for us, particularly for those of us who grew up in the church. We have to realize that this baptism doesn't save. We make great emphasis on that point. No, it's a benefit. It's a blessing. It's a blessing to Luke to have the sign of the covenant because he'll always know that the promise of the gospel is for him. I remember as a kid, every time some other little kid was baptized in our church, I was able to say, they did that to me. And I was able to say, this promise is mine. But it's a promise that, that needs to be received. It needs to be received by faith. I just simply can't say, I'm fine because I'm baptized. I can't say, I'm fine because I'm a church member. I can't say, I'm fine because I live in the United States and there's many Christians around me. I can't say, I'm fine because my mom and dad were Christians. I have to embrace this. You have to embrace this. And Paul's concern for his people was that they would have these privileges and trust in them. And so just if I could just lay out this passage quickly, and that is from verses 17 to 20, he lays out their privileges. And then he asks a couple of rhetorical questions after that that gets at their heart. And then he makes a shocking conclusion. And then he picks up again and he gives another privilege that they've had. And he lays that out as well. And then he ends with another, what would be for them, shocking, but I would say a blessing, a shocking conclusion, a conclusion that's a blessing to them. But notice the privileges that they have. And these are real privileges. Paul isn't saying that they're not. Verse 17, he says, you call yourself a Jew, which means they understood themselves to be the covenant people of God. You rely upon the law. You have it. It it revives the soul. It's a lamp to your feet, a light to your path. Um, You know his will through it and approve what is excellent. Um, You know his will. And indeed, um, uh, you yourself uh, are a guide to the blind um, a light to those in darkness, an instructor. They, were, they had great privileges in, in the world, and not only in the world, but amongst themselves because they had this. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, says this, verse 2. He said, it'll come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations shall flow into it, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And so Israel knew they had the law of God, and they knew the privilege of that, and and it enabled them to, to, to teach it, to be a guide to those 
who didn't have it. In Isaiah chapter 42, in verse 6, we read this. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I'll take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And we know this will be applied specifically to the Messiah, but the nation would read this then and go, okay, this is who we are. We're to be this. And Paul says that's a privilege and a responsibility. But then he says this. In verse 21, he says, then you who teach others, do you teach yourself? Or you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You boast in the law, but dishonor God by breaking the law. He's saying you have it, but you don't live it. He says you have it, but, 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 but it isn't, doesn't infiltrate and define really your, your lives. You're living this life that we would call hypocrisy. That you say one thing, teach one thing, but yet do another. Now, Paul isn't saying that every Israelite um, necessarily steals or commits adultery in this way, or steals from the temple. But we could be getting at something similar to what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount when he says it's the matter of the heart. We're all guilty there in the secret place. But he's using these to, to shock them, to say, oh yes, I see. This is true among us. And it ought not, it ought not be. In fact, he gives this statement, and it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 52 and another portion of scripture from the prophet Ezekiel. He said, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, in the Isaiah passage, in the Ezekiel passage, the reference is that, that the Israelites had been exiled, which means they had been conquered by another kingdom. They'd been exiled. And, and those who had conquered them, those Gentiles, would mock God and say, huh, I thought their God was great, but we, can't, we, we captured them. We conquered them. I thought that God was great, but they don't even follow him. Because you see, they were in exile because of their sin. And now Paul is saying, even here, even still, you look like that because you, you have the truth, but you don't live it out. And so the, the Gentiles mock God because of you. They say, your God must not be all that great because you don't really even pay him any mind. You don't really follow him. You have all the outward appearance of it, but, but none of the reality of it. I read this passage, and it brings chills to my spine, because I wonder, could that be said of me? That the Gentiles, unbelievers, mock God because of me. Now, of course, unbelievers mock God all the time because of Christians but it's not really our fault because we're just simply living out the gospel and they don't like it. And so when we say there's only one way of salvation, unbelievers often mock us with that. And well, that's the way it is. And so that's the way it goes. We can't do really much about that. Or, or when we protect the lives of the unborn or, or, or when we say that, that marriage is, is only to be between one man and one woman uh, for their lifetime. 
or when we uphold uh, God's understanding of the Bible's revelation of human sexuality and what it means to be man, male and female and, and, and when we understand what marriage is all about and all that. So, so oftentimes the world mocks God because of that, but that's not what Paul's getting at. What Paul's getting at is so we live in such a way that the world sees our lives and says their God must not be much because they don't really follow him. It'd be like if an athlete said, I've got the best coach in the world, but then never ran the plays that the coach gave. You'd wonder, really? Is he really that good? Or you might say, I have the best financial counselor ever, but you never take her advice. Really? The Gentiles mock God. Thus, that's the question we must face. See, when we live our lives in arrogance and pride or we live in such a way that we show show that we think ourselves inherently better than others or we speak rudely or fail to love one another, love our neighbor, we dishonor Christ with the words that we use or how we use our money or state of our marriages and families when we fail to forgive, when we treat others badly, when we fail to seek justice for those who are being treated unjustly, when we aren't merciful and gracious and kind to others. The world looks at us and says that God must not be much. I have to tell you, this last year or so, I've wondered many times, worried many times in my own life, confessed many times in my own life during the season of COVID and racial unrest and political unrest, my life such that unbelievers mock God because of me and how I'm behaving or not behaving. Perhaps you've felt the same. But there are positive examples, good examples for us. I was reading recently in, in Daniel, and you know this wonderful story of, of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6. When he becomes uh, one of the leaders, and the other leaders get jealous, and so they go to the king and they say, uh, there should be a rule that for 30 days nobody gets to pray to their God or seek their God or inquire of their God. They can only inquire of you, king. You need to sign this into law, which he does. And what does Daniel do? Daniel, Daniel knows about this, and so what did he, he, do? he does? Three times a day, he opens his windows and he prays. And the, the, as you know, the, the, the penalty for that, the consequences of doing that is the lion's den. And so Daniel is, even much to the king's dismay, uh, assigned to the night with the lions. And they don't eat him because the angel of the Lord comes and protects him. And the end result of that is what? It isn't the king mocks God. It's the king praises God. He says this about Daniel's God. He says, for he's the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? And so rather than mock God as a way to live, we can't guarantee this, but a way to live that unbelievers see this and actually praise God rather than blaspheme him. And that's, that's my prayer for us. God, people will see 
who we are, that we live consistent with the profession of faith that we make so that people will say they must have a great God. Peter speaks of this in 1 Peter in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You see, the prayer is that, that regardless of what we're going through, particularly, he says, suffering, regardless of what we're going through, The hope is that people will see the hope that we have in Christ and they'll ask about it so that we can can share that they won't blaspheme the Lord, but they'll inquire of him and say, somehow your God must be great if you have hope in the midst of this, but to do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revire your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So even if they do blaspheme the Lord, they're put to shame by their very words because they have no ground to stand on. Because you're living a good and a holy, holy life. And you see the help to us is to live a life of humility. From an issue of a magazine called Table Talk from some time ago, I don't know who this author was, I just wrote this down. And had it. So the Bible is clear that until we are glorified, we will always fail at some level to practice what we preach. Non Christians will take advantage of this and always use our failures as cause to blaspheme the Lord. And there is not much we can do about that. However, if we're open about our failures and are careful to never promise sinlessness in this life, we can render their criticisms wholly illegitimate. Christians aren't free from hypocrisy, but we should be free from impenitent hypocrisy. That is to recognize it and to confess it and to acknowledge it and then to live. Paul goes on. He says, all right, we've talked about the law. Just having it isn't the solution. You need righteousness. And you disobey it. So what about circumcision? Verse 25. He says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Um, I'm going to say circumcision and uncircumcision way more times than I want to. All right? So just, just, you know. But circumcision was a sign of the old covenant. It was a sign given to Abraham to signify the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And it was a sign of the covenant. And they were to live faithful to the covenant. And as you know, Abraham was to give this sign to his eight-day-old sons, all the sons in Israel born eight day, on their eighth day. And even any Gentile converts were to be circumcised to have the sign of the covenant. And this sign signified something. Many signs of covenants would signify what would happen to you if you disobeyed the covenant. And this sign 
is that if you disobey the covenant, if you're unfaithful to the covenant, you'll be cut off. And so Jews carried in their bodies, men, Jewish men, the sign of this covenant. If you're unfaithful to it, you'll be cut off. If you are faithful to it, you'll have life. Well, Paul says that circumcision is of value only if you obey the law, if you're faithful to it. And they knew they couldn't really be, but they would hold on to circumcision as their guarantee that it'll all be fine in the judgment because we have the sign of this covenant. This sign will protect us. And Paul says, no, no, no. Verse 26, so if a man who's uncircumcised, a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now, to a Jew reading this, they would think that's crazy. But Paul wants the answer, yes, of course. Of course it would. Because the point isn't the sign. The point is the obedience. And then notice verse 27. He says, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and uncircumcision, but break the law. He's saying these Gentiles who follow it, who obey it, will stand in condemnation of you and the final judgment if you too don't believe. It's sort of like what Jesus was referring to in Matthew and um, chapter 12 and verse 41. He was talking to Jewish leaders, and he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You remember the story of the Ninevites. Jonah went. They weren't Israelites. They repented. They believed. God saved them. They weren't Israelites. And he says, that group of Gentiles will stand in judgment of you Jews if you don't believe. And then he goes on to say, the queen of the south will rise up at, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. For us, in essence, he's saying something like this. If you grew up in the church, if you had all the benefits of the church, baptism and sacraments and, and teaching and people praying for you and the example of people's lives following Christ, and if you grew up, and if you don't believe, those who didn't grow up in the church and you have believed will stand in judgment of you, they'll look at you and you'll say, I didn't believe until I was 47. You've had it all your life. I didn't believe until I was 65. And you've had it all your life. And they'll stand in judgment of you. Or, or perhaps just growing up in the United States where we're free to worship. We're free to buy and read and talk about the Bible. We have those who uh, witness to us. And then there's people from other countries where it's illegal to be a Christian, where to be a Christian could cost you life. Those Christians from other countries will stand in condemnation of unbelievers in the United States and say, you had every opportunity. 
You could come and go in churches as you please. You could read the Bible in public. You could listen to it on the radio. And I had to sacrifice nearly my life for this. Why? Why wouldn't you believe? And here's the rationale for that, the ground for all of that. It begins in verse 28, the word for. He says, that's all true because of this. He says, because you need to realize no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. Other places, that little word is translated secretly, you see, in the heart. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. See, it isn't just an outward thing. And Paul would say, it never has been. It's never been just an outward thing. In fact, Deuteronomy and um, somewhere, chapter 10 and verse 16. Moses writes, I'll begin in verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that's in it. If the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all people as you are this day, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. It's always to be a matter of the heart. It was always to point to something else. It wasn't the end in itself to be circumcised and have the sign and that be your guarantee that all was well with God. He said, no, 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 no. This means that you're to circumcise your heart and stop being stubborn and follow after God. Trust in him. And then in chapter 30 of Deuteronomy, in verse 6, It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may, that you may live. So in chapter, uh, previous chapter, chapter 10 in Deuteronomy, it was circumcise your heart and here it's God will do it. Well, of course, we understand that language because we're commanded to believe yet we know that he gives his spirit to enable us to believe. And so he's bringing it all together here. That yes, the command to circumcise your heart. Why? Because God is at work and he is able to circumcise your heart. And the result of that is that something inward takes place. That you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, you see. And that's what's really necessary. It isn't just that you have the sign. It isn't just that you go through the motions. It isn't just that you have the rituals is that you have the reality of it in your heart. The prophet Jeremiah puts it like this in Jeremiah in chapter 4 and verse 4. It says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of, of your deeds. And this is really uh, a precursor to the new covenant. And while Jeremiah doesn't use this language of circumcision, 
in this new covenant talk, it's the same thing. In Jeremiah 31, verse 32, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law uh, within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. And no longer shall they teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. You see, it's something that moves a person, that works in a person. It isn't external, it's something that says, I know the Lord. I know him. He said, Dealings with me. I have dealings with him. I know him. And I'm forgiven. Ezekiel, in a similar way, puts it like this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I'll put within you, a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. That's what Paul is after here with his kinsmen. He's saying, please don't trust these outward things. Don't trust that, but trust really in the Lord that he can move in your heart. It's a matter, you see, of the inward. It's a matter of the heart. Because you see, we've been circumcised with Christ. Turn to Colossians in chapter three, I'm sorry, Colossians in chapter two. See, Christ has already been cut off for us. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9. For in Christ, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him. He was the head of all, and rule, of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You see, Christ was circumcised. His circumcision, he was cut off on the cross. He was cut off for us. A friend of mine, Mike Loto, who teaches at um, Reform Seminary in Orlando, wrote a bit on circumcision. Here's what he says. He says, Christ was circumcised. In Christ's atoning, atoning work, he was cut off. Exiles, purged from among the blessed. Because we're united to him and to his death by faith, the curse has also been fulfilled in us, with the result that we're reconciled to God. Paul was not saying that Christ trimmed away the sin in our lives, but rather that Christ was cursed in the fulfillment of the symbolic association of circumcision with death. And thus, in his passive obedience, Christ fulfilled what Isaiah wrote. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Thus you see, the circumcision of Christ that he underwent on the cross is ours. As the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and gives us faith to believe, and thus the reality is ours. And without the reality of it, nothing else matters. Oh, that doesn't mean that baptism is a good, it's great but only if we know the reality of it. That doesn't mean that church membership and church attendance and church involvement is in great as necessary, of course, for the well-being of our lives. But unless the reality of what it really means to be a member of the body of Christ is real in us, then it doesn't really 
doesn't really matter. Or whatever else we may put our hope in, you see. Now let me end with this. You remember that I mentioned that the purpose for which Paul writes this letter is to bring harmony among the church in Rome and also to give them a missionary emphasis. You can find that in Romans 15. I haven't time. I'm already over time. But I got started late. Take note of that. Um, But um, I've been gone for two weeks, so hey. Um, But he writes to them that he wants them to be of one heart and one mind and one voice. And he wants them to join with him in this mission endeavor. So what we see here is that there's only one people of God. Oh yes, ethnically there's Jew and Gentile. But in Christ, we're one. That's why in chapter four of Romans, Paul calls us all children of Abraham. Because Abraham is the father of all who come by faith, you see. And so it's one in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's talking of Jews and Gentiles, and he says, from Jews and Gentiles, through faith in Christ, God is creating one man, if you will, one body, one community, one people. So in Galatians chapter 6, he can refer to the church as the Israel of God. Why? Because we're true Jews, along with ethnic true Jews who believe in Jesus, Gentiles who believe in Jesus, ethnic Jews who believe in Jesus, are all true Israelites together in Christ. Together we're one body, a nationality, our ethnicity, none of that matters. Our families, none of that makes us Christians. And then because of that, you see, there's this great missionary endeavor. I imagine Paul would bring this up to them. And he said, the Lord Jesus redeemed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you know that because you come from every tribe, Tongue, people, and nation. You, you know that. And how does he do that? Well, because all that matters is a work of God's spirit to circumcise the heart, to enable belief. And all who believe are one together. Hmm. Revelation 7. After this, I looked up and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's true of those who truly believe. Let's pray. Father.
I pray for me and for us that we don't get caught up in all the externals and all the things that seem so nice and helpful and fun, but rather we take to heart all the great blessings that you've given to us and all the advantages that we have in being part of your church and that we truly believe and rest wholly and sincerely and completely upon you. Please work that in us. May we be people who live out what it means to be a follower of Christ so that our neighbors and our friends and unbelievers in our city would see us and not mock you, but see us and be drawn to you. Say their God must be great. I pray that you would work that in us. Father, in the world in which we live, there's so many devastations. We've mentioned racism, we've mentioned political unrest, we've mentioned the tragedies and the loss of life of buildings collapsing in Miami and people being shot all over the country and all of that. So we do pray that you would restrain your hand and you would work in such a way that you would draw people to the Savior, that we may be joined together really as one people to love you with our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Father, we pray for those in need. I'm thinking of Brian and Eve Tolfrey and their family this morning after the loss of their house burning this past Friday. I pray that you be with them, sustain them, help us to help them. May they cast their cares upon you and trust in you. For Dave Osborne, as he... uh, suffers with COVID, and I pray that you would heal him and others in his family. Father, we're grateful that Don and Mao are here this morning. We pray for them that you would bless their ministry and their work. Father, you've uh, taken them to another country, at least Don and and Mao as well, from Mexico to Spain, and Don from here to Spain. And, And Father, we pray that you would bless their work in such a way that... People there in Madrid, and students would come to faith in Jesus, and we could see the fulfillment of your great promise to redeem those from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. And the reports that we would hear from them would be reports that would bless us because we'd see the work of your gospel and that you would sustain them in it and bless them too. So, Father, be with us, I pray. In these days, may we be Christians. May we be followers of Jesus. May we be people whose hearts have been circumcised by the Spirit of God. People have been born anew and again that we might live in a way that draws people to Christ. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.